you never know where the ideas can go. Cause I think like we all have our own experiences and we all have our own perspectives on how things should fit in the world or how this is important. But then if you hear from someone who has a totally different experience and then combine those two things, you can create something that neither of you would have thought of um, initially. So I thought this concept of open source is so powerful and that you could build on each other's ideas. With me on the show today is Melanie Shimano. Melanie is faculty at John Hopkins, the founder of the Food Computer Program in Baltimore, and currently attending Harvard, working towards her master's degree in education. Melanie, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk to you again. The uh, The first time that we met was at Red Hat Summit uh, in 2019 up in Boston, um, where you were a speaker, and where you were presenting the Food Computer Program, which we will get to in a second. I definitely want to touch on that. But before we get there, Let's let's roll back and talk to how you got to that point, um, sort of the prequel interview, if you will. <laughs> so to start off, at what point growing up did you decide that, you know, science, technology, engineering or any of that was kind of where you wanted to focus on? Did you know that when you were younger or was that something that you got to when you were a little bit older? Yeah, I think um, that's kind of an interesting question. My my dad studied engineering um, and he was an engineer for a while. And growing up, I did a lot of dance, I gymnastics, and I up to um, around the age of 14, I really wanted to be a professional ballerina. Um, I was pretty serious in pre-professional ballet programs. I didn't really think too much about anything beyond that. <laughs> um, unfortunately, when I was 14, I got a meniscus tear in my knee. And so the solution for that was either, you know, get surgery and get it removed or hone back on the dancing and focus on something else. And so my mom was a little bit worried about me getting pretty like drastic surgery when I was that young. And so, so we decided that that I would hold back on ballet and, and that I needed to kind of like reframe my thinking in, in high school. And I really liked my math and science classes. And at one point my dad had said, you know, if you like math and you like science, you should think about engineering because then you can apply the math and the science to something else. Um, and he's like, if you do like science classes, you're going to do very theoretical stuff versus if you do engineering, you can work with your hands and like do some really cool stuff. And and at my high school, they didn't have engineering classes. Um, I know some schools do now, but I don't know when I was in high school, how many schools offer that. So I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I didn't know that much about what my dad did, <laughs> but it sounded interesting to me. And so I applied to schools in engineering, thinking that it was something that I wanted to do. And, and I'm really glad that I did it because I ended up sticking with it through college. I know a lot of people who go in kind of change their mind a lot and go through all these different ideas of what they want to do, but I really liked my classes and stuck with it, um, ended up studying engineering in, in school and then continued to do that for a uh, master's. And then um, here I am today, still doing stuff in the tech world. Awesome. Yeah, I always find it interesting, the degrees that people get versus what they end up doing. I have so many friends that have degrees in completely separate areas <laughs> of what they're around their professional career is. And it's kind of interesting because it's like what degree you get for your bachelor's degree is like a, a snapshot of who you were when you were, you know, in your late teens and early 20s. But then what you do as a career is more a better reflection of the type of person that you've wanted to become. Exactly. You went from engineering. You went to uh, Hopkins, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, Hopkins. Okay. It's awesome. It's a great school, by the way. Uh, anybody <laughs> who's listening as it's thinking of a school, I do recommend Hopkins. It's cool. <laughs> and you actually teach there now. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah I teach there. And it's, yeah, it's really cool to, to see Hopkins from both a student perspective. I worked there as a teaching assistant when I was an undergrad and a master's student. And then from a faculty perspective, I think 
all of those different elements and all different viewpoints kind of give me a, a very unique view of what Hopkins is like. And it's kind of interesting. I think a lot of the faculty had gone to Hopkins at some point in their career, whether it's for undergrad or graduate school. So it's it's kind of cool to see that continuation of building that Hopkins culture. And I think a lot of people, Hopkins, at least when I was there, is a very unique culture and like um, very supportive, has a lot of opportunity for you. But a lot of times you have to kind of figure out where those opportunities are um, and people will help you along the way, but no one handholds you. Um, and I think that's something that's a really unique thing about Hopkins and something that's helps you figure out what you want to do also. Um, like you were saying, I think a lot of people try and, and do something when they're in college. And then as they grow up and as they have different jobs, they figure out like who they really are. So I think that really helps speed up that process in college when you're taking classes and then also trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to figure out? What do I want to do? Mm. Um, so yeah, I really like it. Yeah. And from the uh, secondary education perspective, I've also noticed that there's a, a kind of a difference because some schools it pretty much like you mentioned it's hand holding you go in these are the classes you take you go through you come out the other end you've got the certificate but that's it whereas schools like hopkins and there are other schools there's definitely more of an emphasis on like personal agency in your own education and it's mm -hmm. not just like here's the road it's here's all of the roads and you get to decide and kind of navigate your own way to where you want to go which I think is really cool. Yeah. And I think a lot of faculty and staff and, and different opportunities around Baltimore kind of embody that as well. Like people are willing to hang out. People are willing to have you work with them. You know, if you email someone, they'll be like, yeah, sure. Like, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about something that you're interested in. I'm happy to help with whatever. And and Baltimore, like, you know, is like small Baltimore, and yep. anyone you talk to might know someone who knows something. So so that also, I think being in Hopkins and being in the Baltimore environment also helped me think about like, okay, you know, it's more worth to just continue talking about stuff and continue trying to hone what I'm thinking about. Um, and then that also helps me understand how I'm thinking about stuff, how other people are thinking about stuff and how those things can potentially merge together into to building new things or to building things that are useful for people to continue to work on. So that actually kind of leads directly into one of the main things that I wanted to talk about, which is, of course, it's, it's a premise in the open source concept of people working together and helping each other. When did you first kind of become aware of that kind of open source mindset? Did you did you have any experience with that in high school or was that mostly when you got to university? Yeah, it was mostly um, after university, actually. So I okay. had done some computer programming classes for my engineering degree. But, um, you know, to be totally honest, I really didn't like it. <laughs> I thought, you know, OK, this is cool. I'm going to do this for this two classes that I need to focus on MATLAB. And then I'm never going to do computer programming again. Um, and then. Uh, later on, I got more interested in different concepts. Um, one of the classes that I took that was one of the most impactful classes I've ever taken in my life was my senior capstone in undergrad, where essentially the goal is you have to create something that hasn't been created before. It has to relate to chemical engineering, but um, the only requirement is that it hasn't been invented before. So you have to create a product. Um, and I thought that was one of the coolest things for me to do because that really helped me understand all the other classes that I had taken and said like, okay, well, I had to understand what these equations were for. I had to um, write down all these variables for um, problem sets. But now if I'm trying to design something, like all these things actually matter. So I have to figure out, you know, how does this play out in real life? And like, this is how it can be actually applied. And then thinking one step further in terms of how is this applied? And then how do other people think about this? And then how do I explain these like technical concepts to people who have no engineering background and no science background. So I had this experience in, in undergrad kind of thinking about like hands-on projects, 
really enjoying it. I thought this, this is how I can learn the best and do stuff and figure out new things. And so um, when I would find stuff online or just exploring, I'd be like, okay, like the way that I can learn how to do this is just by like diving in and doing a project in this. And one of those projects was a series of open source automated farms. And um, I was so blown away that someone would just post all the code and post all the materials that you need and like where to buy it on Amazon links online. I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly like the type of stuff that I like to do. I'm just going to try and figure it out. Um, and the cool thing is that I could like take this code and just like copy and paste it. Um, and it turned out that it's, it is that easy, but it's not. And like to really understand like how it works, I needed to to teach myself and go back to coding, which I like hated. Um, but, then, but then when I went back to it, I decided, decided I actually really liked it um, and continued to work on it. And, and then through that process of learning Python, learning about Raspberry Pi, learning about automated agriculture um, and indoor farming and all these concepts, like got connected to all these different open source people who really embody this, you know, culture of sharing and contributing with each other and like building off of each other's ideas and just like doing it for the sake of doing it because they want to share it with other people. And I thought that that was such an amazing way to, to be and to learn and continue to like participate in the world. Because if you've done something, then, you know, what's the point if you've just done it by yourself, I think it's, it's better to share it with other people. And, and then you never know where the ideas can go. Cause I think like we all have our own experiences and we all have our own perspectives on how things should fit in the world or how this is important. But then if you hear from someone who has a totally different experience and then combine those two things, you can create something that neither of you would have thought of right. um, initially. So I thought this concept of open source is so powerful and that you could build on each other's ideas and not really worry about like, Oh, but what about, you know, these like patent rights or what about like getting lawyers involved or what about like all this stuff? And I thought, you know, that definitely has its place and definitely is useful in certain instances. But I thought, especially for learning and especially for things like technology that are kind of growing at this rapid pace, open source is a really awesome way to, to be able to like participate in all of that um, and then also share it with other people. So I'm really glad that I yeah. came across it. Yeah. So first thing I need to say, uh, I will strongly take the stance that MATLAB is the worst introduction to programming <laughs> ever. I don't know why universities decide that's how they're going to start people. As far as I'm concerned, no, never, never, <laughs> never start with MATLAB. There are other ways to start. Um, and of course, nowadays, like you, like you mentioned with the Raspberry Pi and Python, it's so accessible that anybody can do it. And it's awesome, which we're going to touch on in a bit, what you then were able to do with that with high school students. But the one thing I, you mentioned that I wanted to dig into a little is, you know, just the sharing of information and allowing others to build on top of it. And I find it so ironic that in today's modern technological world, that that's actually a difficult discussion to try to sell people on. Because I just look at history and go, hey, do you remember before the Renaissance, science was siloed. People were trying to do their own science in these little tiny alcoves and they weren't sharing and they didn't want anyone else to know because then that person could do something that they couldn't. And once people and scientists, people were studying, started sharing information, the amount of information exploded, the possibilities, the inventions, everything that our modern world has been built on came from people finding out information, studying, researching, and then sharing that information so the next person could build on it because they understand that they're standing on top of the shoulders of the giants before them. And I think it's really weird that in today's world that we actually have to explain that to people. Like the reason you have an Android phone or an iPhone is because people shared information. Yeah, definitely. I think I remember hearing something about if someone were to try and, you know, rewrite the code for 
an Android phone or something from scratch, like no one would be able to do that in their lifetime or like 10 life. I don't know what the statistics is, but like, it's so incredible how many things we've created that um, people don't realize wouldn't have been possible if people didn't share information. And I think that's probably a huge part of it in terms of technology, I think. And part of the reason why I started the food computer program, I think sometimes we think about technology as like technology and it's this thing that is, you know, on a screen or it's code or it's an engineer or it's whatever. And it's like this, this thing that is its own concept, but it's so much more, it's so much, in, it's integrated in so many more systems and so much more history. And like you were saying, like science and medicine, they wouldn't have been possible if the concept, you know, op the original open source maybe of um, academic journals or something didn't exist. Like people used to train by having an apprentice and training that person and you would know what your you know trainer would know as an apprentice and then you would maybe like surpass them if you were good enough and were able to like figure out new things and then we're like well it's not you know not a good idea to only learn from one person in the world like let's try and figure out better ways to do this and like how do we build on our ideas so yeah i totally think like this concept of open should be also integrated with other aspects that we're talking about not just technology but also thinking about like how has the way that we've built on ideas been prevalent in other fields, like in literature or history or whatever, to then, then think about like, how do these things fit together? And like, how is technology actually not just its own thing, but but a part of bigger things that could have a different kind of impact in the future as well? Yeah, one of the things that I love about open source is, you know, as I am writing software, or I'm working on a project, you know, I'm benefiting from all the things that came before me and all the work that others did. And I know that there's some that are like, yeah, but I like to kind of it, it to be my thing. And my always perspective is if somebody out there can take something I've done and do something better, I want that thing. Like I want the better, I want the better world where other people have the ability to take stuff that I've done, which maybe I think is important. Maybe I don't, but if they can take it and improve my life, I'm winning. Like this is not, they're taking something from me and I'm losing. I'm getting better technology or I'm getting a better world. And that's, that's obviously, I think, something that most people would say, oh, yeah, that that actually would be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard to kind of take a step back and think about like, OK, if I'm not sharing this information, then what did this mean? And then I also think people forget that you can also continue to build on your own ideas. Like it's not just like you don't have to think of everything all by yourself. Um, like, let's say you think of some idea or you write some code that does some really awesome stuff. Someone else builds on it because you know that history of how you developed it in the first place you're like primed to be the person who builds the next thing that's even better than the person who built it before you. So I think like kind of thinking about your background on stuff, thinking about what are, what are you the best at and how, what things are maybe your blind spots or what things could you use a little bit of support in. And if those people are also helping you, then you can continue to build off of it with that puzzle piece in place. Um, and same with other people, like you might be able to fill someone else's blind spot and then they can create something better. So I think it's often the like different perspectives coming into it and thinking about how are we working together to further ourselves instead of how are we only thinking about how to further ourselves without other people because we want to have all the glory to ourselves or whatever. Right. There's a, there's a saying, I don't know who originally said it, um, but it's been a, a saying that I've loved for a long time. And it's that no one of us is as smart as all of us. Yeah. And I think it really encapsulates in just a short phrase that, yeah, all of us working together is obviously going to be better than just one person working on their own. So I had a conversation with uh, Charlie Reisinger the other day, um, which I know you know Charlie, uh, yeah. great guy. And awesome. when we were having our discussion, something came up when we were just talking about open openness. And 
it was that it seems that in many ways, when those of us that work in this technology space, we talk about open source, we always seem to focus strictly on the technology side. Like, oh, the source code's there, you can go look at it. Or if you want to know what's there, if you have a curiosity, you can you can actually dig into it and see what's going on. And unfortunately, I think we so many times miss focusing on what I think is the second order effect of that openness. And that is the empowerment and agency that it gives every single person for what they can do in their own lives. And obviously, this is something that I think you agree with, because when I spoke with you before about the food computer program, your eyes just lit up about the stories that you had of seeing the students kind of getting it and realizing that they had abilities that they didn't know. So I want to I want to touch on that for a little bit. What was it like when you're working with the students and you actually see them have that kind of aha moment when they have that realization of this is something I can do? Yeah, yeah. I think I mean, that's that's like the whole point, right? Like that's that's the whole point of doing anything. Um, so yeah, so like the food computer program, and I guess I'll give a quick brief intro of what it is, but essentially um, it's a program in public schools in Baltimore City uh, where students build these computer controlled farms with Raspberry Pi uh, to learn about engineering, computer programming, agriculture, plant science, design thinking, um, combining it all and then applying those you know, core skills to challenges of their community that they're familiar with. So they're all high school students in Baltimore. They've lived there their whole lives. Um, so as you know, Baltimore experts who've lived there for 17, 16 years, how can they use that knowledge, combining it with the stuff they've done in school and then do something bigger, kind of what we're talking about, like adding on to the things that you know um, with other people in mind as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, the whole point of the food computer program was to think about, okay, these are experiences that, you know, you don't have a lot of hands-on experiences in most high schools. You don't have a lot of um, applied computer programming in schools. You also, I think there's a gap between the knowledge that you acquire, I guess, in a high school classroom and how you're going to continue to use that in the future. I know that there are a lot of programs out there, and I think programs like the IB program, International Baccalaureate, are kind of using um, their platform to help connect like civic engagement and, and hands-on projects and how you're connecting your classroom experience to what you're going to be doing or like what you're living in your life outside of school. But I think it's also, it's not a, a super common thing. And so trying to figure out, you know, if students are thinking that what they're doing in class is just what they're doing in class, and then they're thinking their lives outside or just what their lives are outside, um, there's a huge um, opportunity gap there because they're, you know, segmenting what they're thinking instead of trying to think about, oh, like here I'm learning about history. How can I think about this outside? Or here I'm learning about, you know, math. How can I think about this outside? And I think a lot of times when we have problem sets or, or whatever, it's very much like, oh, this person has eight oranges and this person has 12 oranges. And like, why is that? Right. In real life, you're not going to buy that many oranges. So it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I think being able, one of the, the main things that I wanted to, one of the main objectives, I guess, in the program is to help students understand here's like technology stuff, maybe technology that you wouldn't consider technology, like growing food. We maybe wouldn't consider that as a technology, but growing food in an indoor hydroponic farm with a Raspberry Pi where you can temperature control by yourself with computer code, that's totally technology. And the end product is something physical that you eat and you can make something, you can make a taco. And so if you're eating the taco, you don't think about technology, but then when you're going through the entire process and seeing how these elements fit together and then thinking about, you know, this is really cool. 
And I also know, you know, that I have a lot of fun doing this. And I also know that my friend who's not in this class has walked by the classroom and asked me to make them a taco. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I should sell this and I could make money off of it. And then I start a student business and make money <laughs> every weekend in the school. Like, I think all those things together are kind of like, yeah, that's, that's what school is supposed to kind of be about. It's supposed to be, you know, helping you get into who you are, providing maybe some like foundational knowledge, but you are the person who's with you your entire life. So you're going to have to kind of understand how to apply that. And so I think when, when students start to see those connections and start to make uh, suggestions about ideas to do in the class, or they're like, okay, I'm done with this. Like this part is easy. What can I do now? And I'll say, oh, why don't we figure out how to do something that like I haven't planned as an exercise in the class, or I haven't, you know, decided what they're going to do. I remember one time we were doing stuff with Raspberry Pi and, um, I forget the exact name of the attachment that's on the Raspberry Pi, but it's essentially like a an eight by eight LED light screen that you can program to be different colors. And, and we essentially connected this to the Raspberry Pi with a camera. And so I had some uh, basic code to talk about, okay, this is how loops work and how you can take a bunch of photos in a row and have different lights showing. And someone's like, okay, I'm done with this. Like, what should I do now? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, make something cool so that, you know, you have some special like light pattern that comes up when the camera is going or you do have this other thing. And they came up with this like cool light show with cameras flashing at the same, it was like such a cool thing that I wouldn't have been able to plan otherwise, but they were like, oh, this is fun. And this is how I, this, this is how I like interact with my phone. So I'm going to do this with the Raspberry Pi. Um, but like thinking about stuff like that, I think is really important. And then not that everyone's going to become a computer programmer after they take in this class or become a chef or become a farmer. Um, but having that, like we've been talking about to build on in the future and to kind of think about how different things are connected and how they could potentially use that or have someone else use that, I think is a really powerful experience that um, everyone should like experience. Yeah. Another thing that Charlie and I talked about, and when the, when that episode is live, I'll send you the link. Yeah, definitely. And I'll put it in the, in the show notes was that it seems that education has, is kind of going back to where it used to be. Cause back in the day, education was very practical. You know, you worked with someone, you learned skills. Like for instance, if you got into an apprenticeship program, you learned how to do it while you were doing it with the person who knew how to do it. And they were walking you through every step of the way and you were learning with them. And you had the ability to interact in that real time and ask questions and get understanding from the breadth of their career in that field. And then we kind of transitioned into what I guess now is just considered the formal learning model, which is teacher at the front of the room, students to the back, information is transferred from teacher to students, they write it down on a test and they graduate. But there's no, how do I use this? And you mentioned this with, with Hopkins was that you liked that when you got to the project, you actually had to uh, start applying the different things that you had learned and being able to piece them together and see how they fit together. And I think that that's something that I, I really, I really think we need to get back to in general in education is actually being able to apply it. Because I know for myself, you know, I can read something four or five times and be like, okay, yeah, this is how I do it. If I do it once, I've got it. It's known. I understand it. Just you know, going through the rote reading and writing for me doesn't do it. Now, obviously, a lot of people learn different ways. There are definitely people that can read a book and then they can quote the book later. But from my experience, most people learn by actually implementing what they're learning while they're learning it. Um, do you think overall we're going to start to see a trend, things trending in that direction again? Yeah, I think a lot of educators and education research and schools are trying to think about, you know, how how do we do this? And I see a lot of parallels in the education world with the food world and similar that like, okay, you know, we used to all have our own farms. We used to, you know, grow vegetables. We used to 
have maybe like a community farm. And then we figured out like, oh, you know, we could scale food. We could like process it and have these huge factories to do all these things. And then like, as we continue to do it, we're like, oh, let's do more and more and more and more. And then by the time we get to this point where it's like, oh, let's, everything is like totally processed and, um, you know, there's some, some real produce and some real food, but a lot of food is like maybe not great for you. Um, but by the time we get to that point, it's like, okay, we already have these like really in-depth, complicated systems that are in place to create all this food. And it's hard now that people are realizing like, oh, you shouldn't eat, you know, this fast food French fries every day, even though it's really easy to process and like scalable. And now we're starting to hone back and be like, okay, well, we can't totally just get rid of all of these organizations or companies or food products. Um, but how do we think about maybe going back to the roots and going back to not necessarily everyone having their own farm, but now that we've reached this point of scalability, how do we continue to move forward in a way that using the knowledge about like health and food? Um, and so I think education is maybe kind of similar in that we started off with this model of, you know, apprenticeships or learning by doing, and then we're like, how do we scale this? You know, maybe let's make this the original open source and to start working with other people. And then as we started scaling the education system, um, you know, we have this new model of school where it's like a teacher with 30 students in one classroom who have to sit there all day because that's the best way to manage 30 different type of personalities. And similar with food, like with, with all this industrialization of food, we've been able to feed a ton of people and able to provide a lot of stuff that maybe people wouldn't have access previously. And so with education, now we can provide education for a lot of people who maybe previously like wouldn't have been able to have access to education. But now we're realizing this actually isn't the super scalable model isn't really sustainable in a way to support the kind of like growth and innovation and connection that people actually need to learn things in a really meaningful way. And so now we're trying to hone back, I think, and trying to think about, okay, how do we, how do we integrate this into our already scaled system in a way that doesn't totally overburden teachers and also still maintain some of that, you know, not credibility, but uh, like, systematicness, I guess, if we have standards and we're like, we want people to know how to do a certain level of math, or we want people to know a certain amount of reading, but we also don't want to force them to just memorize times tables and then never use it again. So trying, I think it's such a complicated thing because there are all these really um, well-developed systems in place um, that's hard to break down, especially in like a public school system where it's constantly going to, you know, making sure that you're meeting the standards, like taking certain tests, making sure that you're serving everyone and not just as a curriculum standpoint, but also with things like food and medical services and other like hubs of the community. And so how do you continue to, to offer all these things and then also innovate on top of that? It's, it's very complicated, but I think it's something that people are starting to think about and people are starting to do, but it might take a while for everyone to be able to like participate in this fully. Yeah. And another thing that, that you just said, which, which brought another thought to mind was so we have definitely scaled our food production capability massively from what it used to be. However, it seems we've also, by inadvertent design, also created a potential problem in that we have outsourced all of the food production into effectively separate, not to try to use the pun, but into separate silos that are in different places around the region or around the country. Um, now, obviously, some of that is just going to be climate based, but it it brings about the same problem that you know we mentioned i mentioned earlier with you know back in before the renaissance where edu you know knowledge and information was siloed and it couldn't be able to be shared as well you know i used to live in pigtown for a while in baltimore and you know if 
my car, if I didn't have my car with me, and let's say there was a natural disaster and you weren't able to get out and you weren't able to get around. Well, my food supply in my house is going to run down real quick. The, the, the local store that I would go to, well, it's going to run out real quick because everybody's going to run there to buy the food. And now we have a food desert in the middle of the city and there's no way for any of us to get food because, well, all the food is far, far outside the city. So we've, we've created these food deserts all around the country. And it's been because by scaling things, we've been able to outsource the food production out to the rural areas, but that creates a very weak system. And like with your food computer and other things that I've seen with aeroponics and vertical farming, it's a fantastic idea that, okay, we've learned how to scale it. Now let's also learn how to diversify it so that it's everywhere. So it's evenly spread so that if something does happen, it's okay. People are still going to have food to eat because obviously food's kind of important. <laughs> 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 yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we, we touch upon a, a little bit in the food computer program is like, um, okay, we've done this thing in the class. We've all built these food computers. We've learned how to code. We've learned why these things work and how they can continue to work and how we might want to add on to them in the future. But then we also talk about like, okay, is it feasible for every single one, every single you know student in this class to have their own food computer at home to continue to work on this and to you know grow their own food? Um, and so every semester we do like an end of year, uh, or every end of semester project where we kind of think about, okay, these are the things we've learned. Here's what we know about food computers and Baltimore. Here's, we'll do some, you know, community interviews where they'll interview people like their family, friends, and, and random people about, you know, what do you know about agriculture? What do you know about technology? What do you know about nutrition? What do you know about, um, you know, compute food computers in general, like technology related agriculture, and then get a sense for like, okay, well, here's, here's the gap between what we know and what the general population of our interviewees know. Um, and then start to think about, okay, so it's not probably feasible for every single person here or every single person in Baltimore to have their own food computer. And maybe that makes, maybe that would make people resilient if everyone knew how to work a food computer and grow your own vegetables. So you always have this constant supply of food. Um, but also that requires that people have that knowledge and, you know, want to do that for themselves and like learn how to code, learn how to have this box in your house that grows vegetables. Um, so then we try to unpack that and think about, okay, what's, what's the gap though? Like what's the, um, what's the happy medium between everyone having a food computer and having no grocery stores in this area of Baltimore. Um, and so we'll kind of unpack that and think about, okay, well, would we have one at the school? Would we have one, um, you know, in churches? Would we have one in the libraries? And how would that even work? Um, and then have students kind of come up with different ideas like, okay, well, if we had a food computer in the school and a library, um, we could use it in the summer because there's no one in the schools but then when the school students come back, we couldn't necessarily have the entire library filled with food computers because people need to go there to, I don't know, do homework or like do whatever. Right. Um, so try to think about that. And, and one of the projects we ended up doing for the semester was that they were like, okay, well, we're, instead of thinking about individual food computers, which are uh, maybe like a, a meter cubed-ish size, um, they're like, okay, well, let's make a, a, a giant food computer. We had this empty room in the basement um, where they essentially kind of uh, weaved together, it was, I think, 16 food computer like basins of the hydroponic, you know, tub where the plants would grow. And they connected them with with pipes so that the water would continuously flow. And they were able to grow like, I don't know, almost 400 plants in there. So like, okay, this is a more scalable solution if we wanted to use this, you know, for the school to be able to supply for, um, I don't know, one of the grades, grade levels. Um, but yeah, I think that's, 
that's something it's, it's so hard to think about because like, once you start thinking about stuff and learning about stuff, there's like, okay, well, this is a possibility, but this is not a possibility. And, but I think that's important to kind of consider, especially as if part of this is, you know, being more civically engaged or thinking about technology in new ways, how, how then does that apply to you as a person? And, and especially with all these new hydroponic and like aeroponic companies coming up, like, um, Gotham greens, I don't know if they opened yet actually, but they had a, a spot in Baltimore where they were going to open this huge hydroponic farm. Like if they're opening it up and, and kids are learning about it, like how do those things connect with each other? And, and how does that benefit Baltimore city versus just like being a place where people can grow vegetables and then ship it off to somewhere else? Yeah. And I, I think it's also interesting because, you know, cities have no problem spending enormous amounts of money on things that they think are going to be good for the city. Like, for instance, you know, speaking of Baltimore, the uh, the Ravens Stadium, um, I forget what name is slapped on the side these days because it, it changes every <laughs> once in a while. But yeah, that, that, I believe, was like $200 million to make. And it's like, maybe it is just something that we should consider, you know, maybe there should be a center somewhere in a, a city, not necessarily straight downtown, but in the metro area where you have facilities set up so people can use them. You know, there's, we always seem to be able to find money for all the fun things. And we ought to get better at actually finding money for the important things. Yeah, yeah. I used to work in city government and it was really interesting. We had a conversation. We would hold these um, brown bag lunch and learns about technology and related to the public sector every so often. Um, and one of them we were talking about, I forget the exact conversation, but one of the women who was there um, had been working for the city government for a while. And she's like, you know, a long time ago, um, we used to have uh, community organizers that were really prominent in Baltimore. Community organizers, they would connect with the community centers. And that was a really awesome way to, you know, you know, Baltimore's like very, all these different neighborhoods and each neighborhood has their like unique personalities. And so that was a really awesome way for each neighborhood to actually like, you know, connect with each other and then connect with the city and make sure that all these things are happening and the community organizers would be like the bridge between the community and what's happening in city government. So when they're thinking about, um, I don't know, making sure that they're paving roads or whatever, that they would have a voice in that, that option. But then she was like, and, but the funny thing is like, it worked really well, but once funding started to, um, they lost some funding for something. I forget exactly what it was, but they're like, well, you know, our, our town, our city is so resilient anyways. Like, um, maybe we don't need to fund these community organizers. And so that, you know, over time has kind of led to less interest in maybe like civic engagement, community building. But I think like you're talking about like having those hubs back and using those community centers for the community would be a really awesome way to do that. Um, I know that there's a, a community center in, I forget the name of it, but in South Baltimore, who's trying to continue to do stuff. Um, and had been talking about them was thinking about, okay, well, one of the things that they wanted to do in the summer was have a community garden and have both kids and parents and whoever else wanted to join in, you know, like have these agriculture classes together, or have these farming classes together and learn a little bit about it. Um, and they were struggling because they were like, how can we continue to do this? How can we continue to do programming throughout the year? Because it's going to snow, it's going to get cold. Um, so we were thinking about like, how do we move transition that to like an indoor type of thing with a food computer and have that year round community garden um, to start building back those relationships and to start thinking about how do people engage with the city and engage with um, each other again, or continue to do it. I mean, people are engaging a lot, like people are very into their community. So I don't want to suggest that people aren't engaging. With their right. But yeah. Cultivating that. It's, it's almost as if 
it's almost as if humans are social creatures and we actually need <laughs> to have good bonds and, and communication with everybody. <laughs> and from, from a leadership perspective, you know, just generally, this isn't even necessarily just on politics, but just leadership in general, you know, you need to stay in touch with those that you represent and that you're, you know, taking care of having that two-way communication so that you know what the people under you actually need and want and care about is an important thing. And when that starts to break down, that, that road goes to very dark places. So to, to come back to the food computer, I know I spoke with uh, Ruth Suley, who worked on the CoLab project that uh, Red Hat does to get uh, young girls into STEM. So she was talking about the, the project and how it is focused at younger teen girls, while they're in that point where they still have a lot of uh, interest in technology and helping foster that so that they can carry that forward in their lives. And unfortunately, because of privacy concerns, obviously, Red Hat can't go and find out, you know, three years later, well, what's that girl doing in her life? Like, is she is she doing better? But being in the schools, you probably have more of an access to actually see the students again that you've dealt with previously. Is Have there been situations where you've seen a student who came in who, you know, at the first day was just like, I don't know what any of this is. There's no way this is going to work. I'm I'm here because I have to be here and I don't care. But then through the program, really was able to see the possibilities and, you know, kind of feel empowered in themselves. And then have you seen that? And then have you seen that later on how it's stayed with her? Yeah, um, I, I know that there's definitely a few examples of students. And actually, I'll give one example. I know um, so a couple of years ago, what we wanted to do at one of the schools was try and incorporate the food computer program in more than just uh, the juniors in high school. So give some opportunity for like sophomores to do stuff and juniors to do stuff and then seniors to do stuff. So they kind of gradually incorporate computer programming and food computer in their science classes. Okay. And it was really cool because there was one year when um, I would, you know, like introduce the concept in a, in a week long of the sophomore science classes and then had them as juniors. And then senior year, they could do a capstone um, in this like track of science classes that was a separate class. And uh, three of the girls who were in the sophomore and then junior and then went on to the senior class um we're like okay for our capstone class we want to do something with food computers versus like the other students were like oh let me do something with like uh fish or whatever um because you could do anything that's related to, to science you can like build your own experiment but i thought that was a really cool thing because it's like oh there's like three girls who are really interested in computer coding and like really stuck to it and and at sophomore year they weren't the students who you might like pick out as like oh they're gonna be like they're really into coding and they're really into science. Like they were really into the classes um, and had a really good time doing it. But um, I think no one would have picked them out as being like, okay, like they're the ones who are going to like take on this computer program aspect. And then they, uh, you know, like created like GitHub profiles and like started doing stuff. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and like on an opposite spectrum, I think uh, there's one guy in my class who uh, this was a year when I did this for seniors. And uh, so part of the food computer program is that building the food computer. So we have these huge foam boards that they have to use tools for, and they have to, you know, like construct everything from scratch basically. And so you learn how to use power tools, like circular saws and drills and all this stuff and how things fit together. And it was really awesome because we had the space in the basement where we could do this. Um, we did this in my class and then we continued to do it in, in other science classes and the farm manager for the school, because they had some space in the backyard where we had a donated like large scale hydroponic or like shipping container type farm that someone donated. Okay. And so he like helped manage that and some like ground 
regular traditional farming at the school as well. And so he would always bring in his tools to help with stuff outside. Um, and that experience, I think, really stuck with this one, uh, this one guy in the class and later on found out that he had started like a small business where he like renovates people's rooms um, and uses like build stuff by himself. And I thought that was like such a cool experience because in the class we had started a, uh, a, a business. And so we talked a little bit about, you know, like, how do you market stuff? How do you talk with people? How do you make money? How do you keep track of stuff? And so I thought it was really interesting how he like combined that those things that he thought was really cool from the class. And obviously, you know, there's a million things that are going on in his life. So, so they might've influenced it as well, but, um, I don't think a lot of high school students have an opportunity to like work with power tools and classes. And so him having that opportunity allowed him to like start a business when he was, you know, 19 to do construction projects and classes. Um, that awesome, that looks super awesome. So I think there's definitely stuff related to technology and related to how people think about their role in a technology, technology, like job or industry, but there's also other aspects that are like, Oh, like now that I can do this, I can do this other thing. Or now that I understand what, like how easy it is to saw something now I can, you know, make my own kitchen table or whatever. So like, I think there's like several instances where you can kind of see some element of like how they've started to learn stuff and how they will continue to think about stuff. That is one of the cool things about this hands-on learning is that everyone gets a different type of experience out of it. Um, and you can't, it's not something that you want to pre-program into it. It's like, okay, here's, here's all these opportunities. Here's how we're going to help guide you to learn about new things. Um, but then it, the rest is like your story to build on depending on what you're interested in. So we've been we've been focusing on this from the student perspective, and I want to flip the script here for a second and speak to it from the educator perspective. Obviously, a lot of you know people who are teachers and educators in schools, they were not trained for doing education in this manner because they were trained to teach in, like we talked about before, the formal, the formal model. Have you seen acceptance and interest in switching and changing to more of a kind of a hands-on practical knowledge, even though that's not what they personally know. Have you seen people who have kind of embraced that? Is that something that you're seeing more people get into? Yeah, yeah. And I think education is is interesting in that everyone has a very personal experience with education. And if you've been successful going through a specific kind of pattern, you might try and emulate that because it worked for you. Um, and that works sometimes, but it doesn't work all the time. So I think it's, it's really interesting seeing how people are shifting in the education world and trying to think about, okay, like maybe this is how I learned and I actually learned it really well, but I know that my students are learning this in a different way. And I think there's a researcher or faculty at Harvard School of Education who wrote a book recently called In Search of Deeper Learning, where they kind of go through how do you define deeper learning and, and students actually understanding what you're talking about, having this meaningful relationship with the material, and then continuing to build off of it, similar to like kind of the stuff we're talking about with the food computer program. Um, and one of the things that they were talking about was it's it's hard to quantify it. And their book was essentially a series of all these observational um, studies and interviews. Um, and one of the, the points that they made was like this, the teachers that created these really rich, deeper learning experiences all had a similar type of hands-on project when they were in their learning years. And so I think that plays a big role in it. So like having these opportunities, like if you're one educator with 25 students providing this opportunity, perhaps like whatever percentage of them go on to also teach or go on to be a supervisor somewhere, will think through that when they're providing that experience. Um, but I think like in general, 
um, you know, most teachers like care about their students and they want them to succeed, but they also have to do their job. And I think sometimes there's a disconnect between like what you want to do and like how much time you actually have to spend to do it and how much time, you know, you have to provide standardized tests and, and it's really difficult. And especially I think we know, I think from seeing everything happen during the COVID pandemic, like pivoting is, takes a ton of effort and like can lead to huge amounts of burnout and stuff like that. So you can't just totally shift everything immediately also. So it's definitely like a group process, but I think, I think people are open to it. I think because people haven't had that, if they haven't had that experience, it's difficult to understand um, how something that's just a scaffold can be just as powerful or even more powerful than something that is a very scripted curriculum. And it's not to say like the, the scaffolded kind of openness of something is less academic, but I think it's hard. I remember doing a, um, it was like this educator uh, workshop for this company called PyTop that um, used to have this education sector. And part of the class was, or part of the workshop was like, okay, using PyTop to develop some sort of curriculum that you might think you want to use in the classroom. And it was really interesting because even though all of us build stuff that's like, okay, very open, scaffolded, still points in there where we're trying to think about like, okay, like how do we build something? And they're like, you know, you don't have to figure out everything. Like maybe think about it in a way that's like, oh, you're working with the students together, you're learning together. Um, and I think it's difficult because if you're a teacher, if you're an educator, sometimes you're looked at as like, okay, you are the knowledge holder. Like you can tell us like how to do something. If I'm lost, you might be able to help me through stuff. And so if you make yourself vulnerable and say, actually, I don't know everything, um, that can be kind of scary at some point. And, and if students are frustrated with that, they might say, well, are you the teacher then? Like, why are you teaching the class if you don't know what you're talking about? Um, so maybe it's like a mind shift, mind shift of entire groups of people and thinking about, you know, teachers and mentors and supervisors are there to guide you, but no one has all the answers to stuff. Right. And everyone has like experience that you can build on, but thinking about like learning certain things, as, especially with technology, when it's changing all the time as, as like a group experience and like, how can you build on the, the knowledge that you have to learn about technology? And also um, thinking about, you know, how this matters and, and how you can work with people going back to what we're talking about with open source, like building on each other's knowledge to continue to do stuff instead of saying, okay, this is, you know, what we have to do in a classroom all the time. And this is how you have to act. Right. And mentioning, you mentioned the the pandemic, obviously, you know, this is whole situation is extraordinarily difficult on everyone. I mean, I know people, again, they focus on, oh, this is difficult for the students. It's equally difficult for the educators because they never trained for this. They were trained to be able to work with the students and build those relationships. And of course, now it's just through a screen. And that really does break down that that actual human connection that, that they can have with their students. Um, and it's one way that I think, again, to bring this back to open source, is that open source can benefit and help because, you know, Linux has been developed by developers around the world, all working together, mostly through a computer screen. I mean, yeah, they get together at conferences, but the ability to be able to work with people over long distances and maintain those good relationships is is very important. And obviously, someone doesn't go into wanting to be an educator because they're bored. They go into it because they fundamentally and deeply actually want to empower and have an impact on a student's life and to help that student. And I really hope that we can, as a larger open source community, be able to continue to push the open source mindset into education because that is just, in my opinion, going to empower the educators to be able to then in turn empower the students. And if we can get that ball rolling, 
it's it, it's it can be an extraordinarily powerful thing. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's it's all about everyone working together to make all this work together, because if it's just one person, if it's just, you know, oh, this works because these five people are just really dedicated to their work and they're willing to not sleep. Um, that also doesn't work, even if you're providing a really great experience for students. So thinking about like, how do we use all of these things? How do we um, build those experiences and also like learn from different industries? Like we're saying um, open source can work really well without ever meeting a person face to face, without even knowing like their real name. Right. So so you can think about, OK, you're able to build these communities and able to know like how to work with other people, how to collaborate. Um, so what what like notes can we take for that? education? What notes can we take for that for job training? What notes can we take for that for understanding, you know, like certification programs If people aren't going to college, but want to gain certain skills? How can we use all these things together to make sure that everyone's able to participate? We're able to build on stuff. We can scale things at a certain degree, um, but people still get those meaningful, like rich experiences to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and to like build on who they are as a person contributing to the world. So to, to close out, I have an interesting question for you. What advice would you give yourself if you met yourself in high school? Like now knowing what you know, understanding what you do about technology, about open source, about, well, just life in general, what type of advice would you give yourself? Oh, that's so tricky. I feel like sometimes when I think about this, I think about um, if I were to tell myself any, like I wouldn't want to tell myself anything because I think every single experience that I've had has led to something that has led to something else that has like led me to all these different opportunities and like experiences that without which I would have not been able to like think of it. And so that's such a, that's such a hard question, but maybe if I could like remind myself of something when I was, you know, before going into all of this would be just like to keep going and like keep working at stuff. I think there's definitely times when, you know, we're able to see the fruits of our labor and it's like, oh, this is something that's really cool. And like students really get it. But there's also times when there's like weeks that there's like a week when you're trying to do something and no one cares or no one's paying attention or like it's not really, um, you know, getting to people. And so to think about it again and then try and think about, OK, like how how do I reach this one person who just didn't talk in class today? Like, how can I continue to think about that and make something that's really a great experience? Because it's like. I want it to be a great experience for the students and also like for me, because I don't want to just try and do something that doesn't mean anything. So I think one of the things I would probably tell myself is like, just keep doing stuff and keep working on it and just don't stop because when you stop, then that's when you're not learning about something. So continue to do stuff um, and continue to move forward, but go in a different direction when you start to know that like that's the direction you want to go into. Okay. Well, Melanie, I think that's a great spot to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. I appreciate it again. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.